Hello everybody, it's the Historical Gamer once again. You can call me Matt, and I'm joined here with the Strategy Wargamer. You can also call him Jean. How are you doing today, Jean? Not well, Matt. I am sober, so I'm not well at all. <laughs> wow, that's starting the podcast off strong. If I'm not drunk, nothing's okay. Um, yeah, we may need to talk about that. But um, with that being said, uh, this is episode 23 of the Single Malt Strategy Podcast. It's been a little while since our last episode. I think it's been um, going on a month, actually a little over a month since our last episode. We've been pretty bad in 2018. We put one episode, no episodes in January, one episode in February, no episodes in March, one in April. So uh and and now probably one here in May. So we're we're off to a rocky start in 2018, but we aim to improve on that and uh get back into the swing of things. Um a lot of interviews so uh this year, so we're going to get back on track if not, you know, probably do more than one per month. <laughs> well, a lot of interviews. I've done one with you. So we've got an interview coming up for a new strategy game which is currently in development, uh which will be our next episode. Uh, but today, we, in episode 23, are talking about Paradox, because a lot of information has come out about sort of Paradox's plans for the next year or so, and uh, that's because they just concluded their PDXCon, or it's just such a weird, like, I get that that's their abbreviation and everything, but to me it's weird to have a, con a convention just PDXCon. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as as well as I would like, but PDXCon 2018 make history. So Paradox's own company convention where they kind of talk about their new games that are coming out. They talk about sort of the company, its plans, its success. You know, now that they're a publicly traded company, I think they're, they tie that with some financial announcements as well. But uh, basically their version of, um, you know, one of the big conventions out West, like E3 or something like that, just uh, specifically looking at Paradox and their games. And we learned a lot. Uh, and that's really what we're going to be focusing on this episode. But before we get to that, you know, we might as well lead off with uh, what have you been playing lately, John? A couple of games. Uh, I'll kind of go through it really quickly uh, so we have more time for Paradox. First game I would have to say would be Rise of Liberty. So I know you played this, and I wanted to get your feedback on it. This um, I, <laughs> why don't you talk about it before I provide my feedback? <laughs> So basically, if I have to put this in like a good way, a simple way to kind of put the game, it's Minecraft meets Battlefield during the American Revolution. Battlefield being the first person shooter that, you know, uh, kids play and stuff like that. So it's kind of set like that. It's Minecraft meets Battlefield during the American Revolution. And it's kind of cool because you can use horses, you can command cannons, uh, you take like uh, spawn points. And they have numerous maps, which is really cool. It's It's good for like a good... 30 minute to 60 minute gameplay, you know, just to kill time. I really like the game. It has some really good graphics. It's appealing in numerous factors. Just, you know, I mean, it's not gonna, you get one cool thing I do like about this game I didn't mention is you can command entire platoons of red coats or continental soldiers and go smashing into another player that you're, you know, going up against. You can have like these really mock Minecraft looking battles, which is kind of cool. Yeah, when you said um when you said it was like Minecraft meets Battlefield, definitely more on the Minecraft side than on the Battlefield side. Uh I was almost thinking it's almost like Minecraft meets Ultimate Battle Simulator uh because it's like these little block characters marching around with these sort of cartoony looking 
graphics and you've got the Redcoats and you've got the Colonials, uh, the Americans, and they basically just march toward each other and kill each other without any real semblance of tactics, at least at the level I played. Um, and you can make the you can make the armies huge, so that's kind of where the ultimate battle simulator thing comes in. You can make it so that your computer can't even handle it with thousands of these guys going back and forth. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's I've got 33 minutes in the game, and it felt like a lot more than that. Um, but it is interesting for like if it was free. Um, I think it's it was <laughs> pretty good price. I got I gotta admit, I mean, eight dollars. I feel that's a steal. Um. Okay. I've played mobile apps that are worse, I guess. So for like the Mac and Linux fans, it's on that platform. So that's pretty sick. I mean, for a Mac fanatic like me, that's that's awesome. I mean, I guess you got to take what you get, right? Like you don't have much choice on Mac. But, um, you know, it's it's a fun, just mindless, I want to see guys march together, no tactics, line up and fire volleys upon volleys. And that's kind of cool. Like, and I think actually the guy did a really good, cause I believe this is just developed by one guy. Yeah. Um, and he's going to school. Like I, I was trying to get him to go to do an interview, which we might do uh, later in the year, but he was like, no, I'm in the middle of school and everything. So I can't be right now. I'm like, geez, you're doing this game and you're doing school. Cause it, I mean, it looks perfect. I mean, the game looks like it's, it's, it's done by a team, not just by one guy. It looks very good for someone who's in school doing this on the side just for the fun of it. I will give him credit for that. I would not say it looks like a team put it. But but it being like an individual who's putting together this kind of, hey, have two sides march together sort of mindlessly and just smash each other into smithereens, it's a lot of fun. It's like me putting two armies of Legos together and just blasting them to pieces, like slamming them with my fist. Like, it's entertaining for a little bit of time. Um, the one thing I really thought they did incredibly well was the sound effects. The The sound effect of the, the flintlock muskets going off is just, that's awesome. And when you've got two lines of 500 soldiers on each side all volleying, like, that sounds really cool. But again, once you've done it a few times, it's kind of like, all right, ready for something else. I'm curious to see how the game develops. He's been releasing updates and kind of keeping it fresh, so we'll see how it kind of evolves. Um, but if you ever wondered what it would be like to have a 1,000... Uh, Minecraft characters dressed up like Revolutionary War figures marching at each other and just shooting and blasting the hell out of each other, and you playing one of those characters, if you like, in a first-person shooter sort of perspective, it's a lot of fun for a few minutes. I think it's in alpha still, so I'm assuming he's going to add more and more content to this over time. And he's just releasing an update soon, or I think over the weekend or something like that, he released it. So more and more content's coming down. So I, I do like that. Yeah, I mean, his last update says Thursday. hey oh, I pretty much replaced all of the models, textures, trees, and animations. The game looks like a whole new game. So I guess I'll have to check it out because I haven't played since then. Um, but uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I'd spend eight bucks on it. Uh, it all depends on how sensitive you are for a few dollars but I, it's one of those things that I, if i want to be a little bit mindless i'll probably play it a little bit yeah so that that's i'm hoping it goes to mobile because this is a game i would love to play on my iphone yeah i think it would fit i think that would be an adequate but again the thing that i think is really cool with it is you can create these massive armies and just march them against i think i i created like two thousand soldiers against each other or something like that it was it was laggy as hell my computer couldn't handle it but but theoretically i think you can scale that up kind of to the limit i got like a hundred on the screen and that was like borderline 
Maybe it wasn't 2,000. Maybe it was 500 and 500. I, I don't remember exactly, but it was a lot of fucking troops. And I remember thinking, this, it looks awesome because you've got like a free cam where you can zoom out and kind of go up and down the line and just watching them hammer each other with volleys. It was, it was a lot of fun for a few minutes. I wonder if they add blood effects that I would uh, kind of step it up a notch. Uh, I don't know. I'm not really looking for blood and gore, but, but I guess maybe. Um, and just so, so as a refresher, we've been talking about this a little while. This game is called Rise of Liberty. Uh, and it is on Steam for those of you who are interested. Um, but, you know, it's it's one of those things that I might watch a YouTube video of, but I probably wouldn't buy. But again, everybody, each to their own, I suppose. Um, with that being said, um, playing anything else lately? I have one game that I have on the list. It's I'm probably not going to go too far into it. I want to save it for another podcast, but it's a game called The Seven Years' War. It's by a developer that's actually part of the studio that we just interviewed. And it's uh, it's a game that I wanted to kind of like get a feel for before we had that interview. And it's not a lot of times I get to say this, but I was really impressed by this game. Uh, it's done by a two-man studio. It was actually majority of the development was by one guy. Another guy came toward the end. And it's really, I know you played it too. And I really enjoyed this game because for a lot of reasons one i love that you can assign like you have in like for example i played uh, the british in the seven years war and british have numerous divisions throughout like england and colonial cool thing about it is you can change out the division commanders you can change out the regimental commanders you can even change the uh, weapons that they have from one different musket to another which i thought was kind of cool uh from a brown best to i guess uh what else did I use besides the brown vest? I know the British had something else. I know the militia used the brown vest. Um, another cool thing I like is that that I took away from this game is it feels like Victoria in terms of the financial uh, sense where you have to build uh, factories and manage the income and expenses of your country. But I feel it's like double. It's like Victoria on steroids almost. Well, and, and, and just for just our listeners. For our, for our listeners, what game what are you, game talking, are you about? talking about? Uh, the Seven Years of War. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's you know it's one game that uh, I'm gonna dive more into, I guess, in a later episode. Uh, I did really like it. If you guys want to give it a look at it on Steam, it's called The Seven Years of War. Uh, I forgot the name of the studio, but it was uh, the developer's name is Oliver, and I'm gonna murder the last name, so I'm not even gonna bother pronounce Temple it. Temple Mueller. Wow! <laughs> Holy shit! I don't know. <laughs> you remember that? That's. Uh, uh, I'm lucky I remembered Oliver. They... Yeah, it's uh, John. I'm. I think I don't know if anybody else is hearing it, but I'm really echoing pretty strong. So you might want to turn your volume down. But I'll edit this out. Okay, I'll lower it. Um, it seems better now. Um, yeah. So Oliver Kuppelmuller is the uh, developer behind the Seven Years War. Uh, you mentioned he brought someone else in, kind of halfway through developing the game. It's a really interesting game. It is on Steam. And uh, we have an interview with them, which will be in our next podcast uh, coming out, uh, which looks at their, their upcoming game uh, and kind of we learn a little bit more about it. But I, th- I think you're absolutely right. There were a few times where I asked questions during that interview and I thought, wow, I sound like an idiot or I'm repeating my question or this interview isn't going as great as I would like. And the, the, the individual we had on for the interview did a phenomenal job of uh, every time we asked a question, even if it felt like it was a little bit redundant at times bringing out a little bit of a snippet, a little bit extra, a little bit something new, something different that we didn't, you know, hadn't asked about. 
and he was phenomenal at, at answering questions and really, you know, I was already excited about this game, but uh, he, he certainly made me think, wow, this could be something special. I think there's a lot they're trying to do that is going to be very difficult for a company of their size to do effectively. So we'll see how it all plays out in the end. Uh, but it, I'm excited about it, and I think it was, you know, it was a tremendous interview from him, and I'm really excited to share it with everybody. Uh, probably next week in, in our in our podcast in the following week. Yeah, so it's going to get two podcasts this month, so that's going to be a good thing. Well, we're going to, yeah. So anyway, um, moving on uh, in terms of games, have you been playing anything else or is it is it really just Rise of Liberty and uh, the Seven Years War? I've been playing uh, on my own. I haven't published or uh, po- posted anything on my YouTube. Uh, I've been running around doing school and fire department, a whole bunch of other stuff and uh, my main job. But mainly stuff on my phone. I got ambition to work i don't know if you remember this game i talked about a like numerous podcasts ago it's basically access and allies for the iphone and ipad and i did an initial review of the game like years ago it was uh i gave it like top rated marks a new development studio got it bought the rights to it effed it up a little bit and somehow the game is actually now working. I, I don't know why I just downloaded it randomly. I was on my iPad, downloaded it, it works fine. The multiplayer, everything keeps up. So that's great. And I got back to playing it. So that I would say this is probably that game and Heroes of Normandy is what I've been uh, I've been grinding through on my uh, phone and my iPad while I'm on the go a lot. You come back to Heroes of Normandy quite a bit. Yeah, you know... So the cool thing about Heroes in Normandy is I pl- I have like an ongoing game with a buddy of mine down here, and he uh, he has like basically Heroes in Normandy, Shadows in Normandy, uh, the one with the they have a Heroes in Normandy for the Russian campaign, and they also have one for uh, a Bridge Too Far, which is really cool. And you know we we've been literally playing through all these scenarios. It's an incredible game. So we only get to play it like once a week. That's around the time that we get to have enough time to get together and play for like two three hours. So if I can't scratch that itch during those two three hours, I literally just jump on my iPhone or iPad and you know get creamed by another player there. Cool, cool. Well, um, now that you've talked about uh, what you're uh, what you're playing, I'll, I'll I guess I'll share where I'm where I'm at right now. So I've been playing a couple of different games. I've been playing a fair amount of Steel Division Normandy 44. I played a little bit of that when it came out. I did one or two videos, but uh, I've been playing some sort of late-night multiplayer sessions with uh, Tortuga Power and some of his followers on his Discord chat. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoy playing that game as a co-op. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's Paradoxes published, but it's made by Eugen Systems, kind of the follow-on to uh, the War Game series, but in World War II. It's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. I wouldn't call it like a super high uh, fidelity war game in any ways. It's it's very much like a pick up and play World War II game that looks pretty, but it's not a combat mission or anything like that. Certainly wow. not a, not a grab a team or anything. Um, but it, it's been fun. Um, I've also been playing a, a little bit of Scourge of War Waterloo. Uh, you know, I, I saw that the game was on sale uh, the other weekend, uh, or was it last week? And kind of just spurred my interest, so I went back in there, played some scenarios. I'm really bad in that game with managing cavalry and artillery. Uh, I'm I'm fine with marching infantry up and trying to flank units and charge and things like that. But I suck when my troops start forming square, the enemy starts forming square. I can't manage that for for the life of me. 
Um, so I've been playing kind of like some of the Quattro Barras scenarios where where there's not cavalry in the in the in that. Uh, in That's those... a related game, right? The developers who uh, made Scourge of War, I haven't made any new expansion packs or anything like that. Uh, the last expansion that came out, um, full disclosure, I did have a hand in some of the testing, um, but the last expansion that came out was Wavre or Warv, however you pronounce it. The, the rear guard action between the Prussians and the French that took place at the same time as Waterloo, but like, I don't know, however many miles uh, was it east of the main battle that kind of held up Grouchy and his 30,000 French from uh, arriving uh, and helping out Napoleon and kind of doomed the French oh, that's army. Right, yeah. So that was the last uh, DLC that came out for that. So they've they've kind of covered the whole campaign, if you will. They've got uh, Quatrebras and Ligny, the, the pair of battles that occurred right before Waterloo. They've got Waterloo and then they've got uh, Warv, which occurs just after Waterloo. Um, but, but that game was on sale, I think last week. I'm not sure if it still is on sale or not, uh, but I've been playing a bit of that. And then I've also been playing, um, a little bit of rule the waves again. So I've started a new series on Twitch. That's looking at rule the waves playing as the Confederates. So a hypothetical Confederacy and independent Confederate States, uh, starting in 1900 and kind of playing my way through, uh, and that's been really interesting and a lot of fun. Someone pointed me to the fact that Rule the Waves 2, which is supposed to come out, I think, later this year, um, they've actually announced some of the features that are going to be in there. Um, that could be an episode in of itself. I may make a video about it. But uh, I'm really excited for some of the features that they brought up. I mean, for example, you're now going to be able to trigger invasions where you want them. So rather than like a random event triggering to cause certain actions, you'll have more say, which to me seems appropriate if you're uh you know an admiral of the fleet it shouldn't be totally random where you fight uh convoy actions things like that are going to be a little bit more in your control as a player and that's really exciting to me um so I, i've been playing a bit of that as well sounds fun i know the it's coming out later this year right i think so i, I need to go back and double check don't quote me on that but i believe it's coming out later this year so there's a couple, there's a number of games coming out this year. There's a, a lot of uh, expansion packs, especially from Paradox, that have been announced. I know one of them's coming out in Q4 2018. That's one of the, uh, I guess, do you want to like jump into the Paradox stuff, I guess? What a great segue. Oh my goodness, the Strategy Wargamer, you just, that was a perfect segue into our next topic. So as we mentioned at the start of this episode, Paradox just had their annual convention where they kind of provide their roadmap and sort of their plans or what they're willing to share anyway. Uh, and there were several different things that they announced, one of them which, if we're going to stick with the naval theme, I think the first one we can kind of talk about, and frankly, we don't know a lot about it, uh, but the first one we can kind of talk about is uh, Hearts of Iron 4 is getting a DLC called Man the Guns, uh, which is going to be a naval-themed expansion pack to Hearts of Iron 4, so... Um, you know, the way that they write it, write up the description here is from the battles of the Atlantic and convoy escorts in the west to the island hopping and carrier battles in the east, the course of World War II was shaped by fighting on the seas. Men and women filled the dockyards of the world, making the mighty warships that would prove decisive in humankind's greatest crisis. Uh, I, that, what do you take, like, what do you take from that that can improve, like, that doesn't announce any features. It doesn't even give you a hint of what it's going to do for you. Ships. <laughs> which are already in the game sort of i mean so i'm excited about this for one reason hearts of iron to me has always been a european centric game the way that like to me it seems like and this maybe this is just my perception because of the way i've played and the way i've seen others play but hearts of iron has always really focused on germany and the western allies in russia 
And it's always really been about the land campaigns of, you know, the initial German armament, the overrunning of the of, of Europe, and then the Allied counteroffensives. And it's always been really focused on land combat. Uh, that's where the game has shown and done well. And that's where the game really seems to focus and drive its energy. Asia was always a, an afterthought. They've kind of remedied that a bit with the uh, uh, Waking the Tiger expansion, which came out uh, earlier this year. Um, but it was never a naval game. And I think that's really a shame because to me, World War II is really a naval war. Yeah, you've got, I mean, that doesn't take anything away from the Eastern Front and the, the massive struggle between Russia and Germany. But outside of the Eastern Front, the Western Allies campaign against Germany was fundamentally a logistics campaign that was fought and won on the high seas, and then the land campaign came after. You could argue Russia won World War II in Europe on the land. That's certainly a fair argument. But the naval campaigns were central to the Western Allies' participation. You know, North Africa, all of that takes place as a result of winning the Battle of the Mediterranean. Same goes for Sicily, same goes for Italy, same goes for Normandy. These, these land campaigns are set up by a struggle on the sea. And even more so, if you look at the Pacific, that was a naval war. In every regards, the United States campaign there was a naval campaign. The British a little bit less so, the Chinese obviously less so, but Japan was a maritime power. So all of the majority of their power, a lot of the rationale behind them even attacking America and sort of starting the wider war, it had already been occurring between France and Japan, but a lot of the rationale, it, re it relies on a naval campaign. So to have the naval element be the weakest part of the game, and it always has been, to be the weakest part of the game seems a little bit paradoxical. Like, it doesn't seem like it's World War II, at least in the Pacific, if you can't get naval combat right. And frankly, from the British perspective, you're missing half the war if you ignore the Battle of the Atlantic. So I'm really excited about that. Maybe it's just because I'm, I'm someone who grew up watching over and over and over Victory at Sea. Uh, I think that was what it was called, Victory at Sea, the, like, the VHS set, like 10 episodes about all of World War II, like this documentary set. Um, but, but to me, it just seems like the game has always really missed the, a central element of World War II by not really covering the naval side well. So I'm excited about it. I'm a little skeptical. You know, we don't know anything about it yet, really, other than the fact that it's coming. But I'm a little skeptical that they're actually going to be able to get this right. But I'm happy that they're, you know, putting some attention to it and trying to make it something more important in the game. As, as a naval, you know, I never build ships in Hearts of Iron. You know, I, I there's... I never find a need to like, I know there's naval battles or whatever. Maybe it's cause I play continental powers, but, but you play Germany, I mean, I play a little bit as Germany, um, plays See, Italy. Guy, my friend who's a, uh, who's a big, uh, uh, world in flames fan. He's a fanatic. Uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, board game version. Germany always needs to have a Navy in world war two, whatever game you play, it needs to have a Navy because you need to counter, you don't even have to use the Navy. It could stay in docks, but you need to counter, you need to have it there to counter the English Navy, because if you don't have a German Navy there, the English can literally just sail their entire Navy to deal with Italy and then, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Japan. And so by just having a, a present German Navy there, you kind of force the English to kind of protect the homeland. So they have to have a fleet of sizable proportions to defend England to counter that German threat. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm just I'm the kind of guy who would completely buy into Alfred Thayer Mahan's 
uh, you know, theories on, on naval, the Navy being the most important element. Like, I don't know. I, for whatever reason in the last few years, the soft spot has developed in me for, for the Navy. And I, I think it, it, in these kind of games, it often gets short shrift, uh, and kind of gets overlooked and kind of gets looked at as a, yeah, you kind of need it, but, but not really. It's not, you know, it's not the, the story that you're trying to tell, but to me in Europe and, and certainly in the Pacific, the naval campaigns were absolutely central to being able to wage an effective campaign, and and the powers that controlled the seas won the war. And in World War One, the power that controlled the sea won the war. And you know, without that naval control in either of those wars, I think you've got a big question mark on what would have happened. So it, it always seemed wrong to me that to have the game not really focus very much on the naval aspect. And I don't know if they'll do it well. You know, it's a big question. I, I think it poses some serious challenges to the way that that Hearts of Iron is made, but I'm excited to see them giving some attention to it. The thing about Hearts of Iron 4 that I'm really not crazy about, I was playing it probably the last month or two, is the fact that with the Navy, like if you have the first, I had the British home fleet, and I said, all right, I need you guys to defend these provinces, these naval lanes, whatever. So I set up like the eastern side and the English Channel. The only problem is every time I wanted to locate that fleet, I didn't know where it was. Like I'm looking at individual provinces. I'm like, where's this fleet? Is it out? Is it in the English Channel? I know they can't be everywhere at once. So there's somewhere, but it doesn't look like they're in a specific province. So I mean, I kind of have to like wonder in my head is like, maybe this is the answer to that because a lot of people might've been complaining is like, hey, you know, we tell our fleets to go here, but we don't know exactly where they are. Now, we, I know for me in Hearts Iron 3, uh, that was very different because you could have a, like, for example, I had the United States fleet and I would basically position it between, I would say, the northeast quadrant of Midway to, you know, react to any Japanese attack, maybe on Midway or dilutions or anything like that. So I would have it in a, a specific province. So I knew where that fleet was all the time. And I knew how far the sorties I can send out. They usually go like one or two provinces out, uh, naval sea lane wise. But in this, in Hearts Iron Four, I can't do that. Every time I try to find out where this fleet is, uh, I, I remember I had a, I, I was sending a transport to Africa to reinforce the Africa army under the British. And the transports got intercepted by an Italian fleet. And the first thing in my head is like, okay, where's my British fleet? They were supposed to protect this. And I'm looking all over. I can't find them. And it, it just drove me nuts. So I, I guess I'm thinking man the guns because one of the texts here is they say it's a naval ex themed expansion that, bring, that brings you closer to swelling waves as you train and command large battle fleets. So, and or smaller flotillas better designed for your coastal shoals. So from that little piece that I'm getting is I'm hoping they're gonna give you more control over your battle fleets. It's not just click this patrol and click these sea lanes and we'll do the rest for you. I think they're starting to give individuals uh, and specialized control over your fleets. Which... I, I hope so. I mean, we'll see. Uh, what I will say is that I think the biggest problem with naval combat in Hearts of Iron today, naval combat is treated like land combat. And it's almost like I need to take this part of the, the ocean and seize this land and preserve this land for me, or I need to expand my front in the navy in, in the ocean and, and take this hex. And it it doesn't reflect the reality of naval combat. 
um, and the fluidity fluidity of where ships are. So I hope so. That's my hope. We'll see how it uh, how it develops. To your point, I think you know you gotta have more control if you're gonna have a naval themed expansion. Presumably, you're gonna give players more control over their navies than they had before, right? Um, if you don't, what are you doing? Yeah, and well, I, you know. The one cool thing I, I do like that they're doing, because you mentioned this earlier, and they came out with Waking the Tiger, I think that's what it is. Yeah, Waking uh, the Tiger, which I think had some naval uh, sort of tweaks as well, but it was really focused on China and Japan's campaign in China. So they had Waking the Tiger, uh, take, Tiger China. <laughs> earlier this year, and this expansion pack is actually scheduled for a Q4 2018 release which is kind of impressive that they're devoting a lot of resources to bulking up heart iron 4 i'm kind of impressed by that well i think you know it's a given right like they've got a dedicated team that works of hearts of on hearts of iron i think they've got a dedicated team for eu4 and, and crusader kings and and all of their sort of stable of games that are currently out there and, and active i've seen some speculation that maybe that's why we didn't get a victoria 3 a game announcement because the developers and, and designers who sort of had a hand in Victoria 2 are assigned to some of these other projects which aren't wrapping up yet, but that, more on that later. Um, with that being said, I do want to point out that I think the coolest thing that I've heard all day uh, is that uh, we're currently live streaming this podcast on Twitch, and uh, one of the comments in there was that uh, someone who is currently watching or listening to the podcast uh, I asked for, a, they, they had mentioned a book that I should read on the naval campaign in World War II. I asked them to provide the link, and the response was, I am on a tractor haying right now. Uh, so they are currently watching or listening to us while they are, you know, in the middle of a field somewhere in a tractor uh, farming their land. So that is absolutely amazing. That like is that. awesome. And that is the best thing to come out of uh, of this episode so far. <laughs> Reminds me of those uh, YouTube things where it says thug life, you know, I got a pair of sunglasses come down. Tra <laughs> tra tractor life. Um, with that being said, uh, speaking of these other games that have teams that are, you know, assigned to them, um, Paradox is basically, you know, we're going to kind of go through the stable of what Paradox has announced, but they've more or less announced something for everything. Literally everything they have out, they announced there is an expansion coming or a brand new game coming. So I think the other one, and I, this one may be quick. I don't know how much you've played Hearts of Iron, or sorry, Europea Universalis 4, but they did announce a new DLC for Europea Universalis 4. Dahram, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's a... You're good at that. What? <laughs> I, I mean, I have no, I'm just, I'm speaking with confidence. I'm sure we'll get a comment somewhere that's like, you're a fucking idiot, you pronounced it wrong. Um, but anyway, this DLC, Dahrama, uh, is a new expansion for Paradox Development Studios' classic game about exploration and empire, building in the early modern era. Dahram uh, devotes its greatest attentions to the battles over the control of India's trade and territory. It also hopes to add more peacetime decisions to fill in those quiet moments when you're planning your next big push for power. So it appears to be an expansion that's focusing on India and sort of the conflicts between uh, the great powers over India. It does mention that there are trade company investments, so uh, it's going to provide a capability to upgrade and improve provinces tied to trade companies. So think of like the East India Company. Um, there's a new government type, which is a Cossack government type. Um, so apparently that's tied if you own the Cossack expansion. I don't really know. I, I guess it's just a new government type. 
uh, there's an Indian mission tree, uh, new Indian estates, so like uh, Indian sort of governmental buildings and, and sort of investments. Uh, there is a Mughal culture bonus. Uh, oh, that's cool. So, you know, that that's something new. Uh, charter companies, upgraded trade centers, and, and much more, uh, as well as some policy enhancements. So it's interesting that uh, they're kind of expanding Hearts of Iron 4 to really focus on the struggle over India, which I think is appropriate. Um, you know, a lot of times we think of India today as just being this colony of the British Empire, but that's not really, you know, that that, that sells short the story of how it became that. And um, it, it sort of ignores the fact that, you know, the French, the Portuguese, they all had fingers in India, especially during this time period that uh, uh, EU4 covers. So I think it's exciting that they're they're turning to look at India. I'll admit EU4 is not a game that I've spent as much time on playing as I probably should. I've got several friends who are really into the game. I just have never really given it much of a chance. But I do think that's uh, that's a, that's interesting that they're going to be giving India some some love in this game, and I think it's appropriate. Again, knowing what I do about the history period that they're they're talking about in this game, uh, that's uh, certainly probably long overdue to giving it the emphasis it probably deserves. I, I play a lot of Europea Universalis 4. It's it's one of my favorite games. I would say right now it's even better than in my it's more of a favorite than Heart Iron 4, mainly because I feel there's so much more you can do. It's more there's a lot more detail and it's a lot of more things I can do. The upgrades that you mentioned here, like I really love that the Mongol Empire can now assimilate and accommodate newly conquered cultures ease because obviously they did, which I think is going to be really cool. Charter companies, I do like this, that Europeans can buy a foothold into trade charter zones in Africa and Asia if they can find a prince that trusts them. I like that because, you know, I feel like this game is kind of adding, well, obviously it's adding more stuff to eu4 but it's adding more realistic elements like these things did happen back in the day and they're adding it to the game so it adds more complexity more realism more immersion to the game and if i can add just a couple other things they're adding a monsoon season which is going to make moving ships a bitch because it's <laughs> I, I moving ships now in eu4 is a is, is a pain in the ass uh because you have um Whatever the, the ships get damaged over time, especially if you know the weather's not well. And a monsoon, I'm assuming if I send 60 ships to deal with the French Navy and all of a sudden monsoon during the monsoon season, I might lose a, a good number of them. But a couple other cool things that they added here is uh, new uses for colonists and non-colonial development, which I think is awesome because you know I, more uses for colonists is always good. And the last thing I like is scornful insults. You know, if I can give like the middle finger to the king of Eng uh, king of England or the king of France, I think that's going to be pretty cool. I, I doubt it's going to be the middle finger, but you know, anything, anything would be good. Um. Okay. Well, I mean, again, you know more about EU than I do. I just, I think it's an interesting expansion. I think uh, it's it's good to see their commitment to kind of continuing this game. I know. Uh, one of the criticisms that comes up with Paradox periodically is that, hey, they've got way too much DLC. It takes, you know, you don't get the full game when it first comes out. The game costs like $300 by the end of it. But I think the thing we need to remember about that is what, EO4 came out in, was it 2014? And I think Crusader Kings came out in like 2012. So, I mean, these games have been out six plus years, four plus years, and they're still releasing new content. Like the massive 
amount of uh, of content that's around these games and the fact that they're still getting updated like that doesn't happen you don't you don't get constant upgrades and enhancements to these games and make these games as full as they are unless you're monetizing those years in between because no yeah. game is going to have a sales cycle of five years if it's not being up updated and you're not going to update a game if you're not making money off of it yeah and then you know these bundles come like right now it's 10 percent off for the eu uh it's at 175.37 or if you want to save a buck you know wait till christmas because you know what they're going to do they're going to reduce it by like 30 or 40 percent you can get it yourself for uh you know for you know 100 dollars or something like that maybe it's a bad comparison but you look at something like warfare sims command modern air naval operations and the base game there is like 80 bucks so like if you're talking 130 for all the eu stuff you know, there there's comparable games. I think when you're talking about the level of content in it, um, and I, you know, hey, if you if you really enjoy the game and it's going to be developed constantly over five, six, seven years, you know, to each their own. But I I think it's more than worth it. And if you wait till you get a holiday sale or something like that, they tend to drop the prices by like fifty or seventy five percent on the DLC anyway. Plus, the game's very playable without the DLC, so it's not like you need it. You also got like uh, one of my buddies, me and him were uh, bullshitting about this. We were talking about how like, you know, a lot of people look at a high price, like he just spends a hundred and change for uh, World in Flames uh, for the collector's edition. And a lot of people say, well, you know, that's a lot of money. You should, you know, don't spend that much money on a, on a leisure item and so, such and that. But we were discussing and he mentioned a good point. You know, when you spend something like a hundred dollars on EU4, $175, whatever it may be, right? And you're putting in two, three, four hundred hours of gameplay on this game over the year or two, right? Or whatever amount of years. When you break it down, right, per hour, it's going to break down to a dollar, you know? So literally, you can do one or two things. You can go to the movie theater and spend 10 to 20 or $30 for to see uh, Avengers, you know, Infinity War, right? Or you could buy yourself EU4 and spend hundreds of hours and it breaks down to that one hour, $1, you know? Or, so- or you could not watch any, you cannot spend any money there. You can go to Twitch, you can watch my channel, and you can, if you have an Amazon Prime membership for free, you can give me a subscription. And then I get paid and you spend nothing. Wait, you wait, so... If you have an Amazon... I'm Prime- trolling, I'm just kidding. Anyway, so... Anyway, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Um, but, but... but um, you're right. I mean, the the only thing I would have is a counter to that is I the hours per investment. Like to me, that's the way people justify what they spend. But I don't think anyone needs to justify what they spend. Like if this is worth it for you and you have the resources to spend the money, spend the money. If it's not worth it for you, don't spend the money. But don't get angry at a company for making money and trying to continue to support a game over five plus years. That's my opinion. Everybody has their own opinion. Uh, moving on. Um, so Hearts of Iron 4, we've covered that. I don't think this is going to be a five-hour podcast if we uh, if we cover each game in as much detail. But uh, kind of wrapping up the expansion talk, um, I think there was an expansion announced for Stellaris, but we're really going to focus on the historical titles today. Uh, I think the Stellaris expansion actually comes out in a couple of days. But um, Crusader Kings 2, uh, a game that has come out even further ago, uh, it was released. Was that the one in 2013, or was that the one in 2012? Or was um, uh, 2013? Hold on, I'm uh, looking at Crusaders 2012. Jeez, man, six years old. And they're coming out with their 15th 
DLC. So maybe that's a little bit of justification for those who say there's a lot of DLC with Paradox games. That's fair. There's only 146. I think I own like all of them too. And I, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so Crusader Kings 2 Holy Fury is coming out in uh, a launch date for this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm on their website. I'm release date is to be announced on their website. I don't know if Steam gives you any more. Um, but uh, baptism or war in Holy Fury, pagan rulers who reform their religion instead of converting will have a chance to design the new reformed paganism, uh, a religion of peace or one of war, uh, blah, blah, blah. So what they're really looking at doing in uh, Holy Fury uh, is adding some additional features. I believe they're going to be overhauling the Crusader events. So the way that Crusades work, which is, you know, Crusader Kings, you would think you might want to keep uh, keep Crusades fresh. I generally play as like an Eastern Orthodox country, so I rarely do much in the way of crusading, but uh, they're they're enhancing sort of the way that crusades work. I think that's also part of a free patch that they're doing as well. Oh. Um, they're going to be offering shattered or random worlds, which I think is really interesting and is one of the kind of yeah. things to keep the Fictional. game... Yeah, so keep the game fresh by giving people the option of a fictional map of Europe where you start as a small realm fighting for space on a random map with historical analogs for great kingdoms of yours. So well, basically what they're saying is like, we're going to take a historical analog, a country that is similar to a real country, but we're going to plop it on a fake map, and that really makes things interesting to me because I'm not usually a fictional... like big fan. I play out of the park baseball, but I never play their fictional leagues because I think the history of real baseball is interesting. But if you've played Crusader Kings a million times and you're looking for something different, give me a custom map. Give me something that's new. Give me something that's fresh. And I think that's really an interesting idea is to take these historical countries, but what if the geography was different? So I think that's really interesting, and and it kind of gives more of a fantasy realm to the game than maybe reality. But I think it's you know by this point in time, fifteen expansions, and by all means, you know, have at it. I think it's a pretty interesting idea. Um, additionally, there's sort of this warrior lodge thing, which I guess is uh, allowing you to kind of I don't really understand it. It just says join a pagan warrior lodge and raid your way up the ranks. So I don't know if that's like being a Viking and kind of gaining more power based on your raids and how successful they are. Not really sure. They kind appear like an outcast and join a warrior lodge and coming back and trying to go at your old old people or something like that. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't. I don't know. Um, legendary bloodlines. So descendants is of great. Like... Sorry. No, I, this is something I really like. So yeah, the legendary bloodlines uh, thing, uh, where you could be, um, uh, I call it descendants of great warrior heroes that will have bonuses match accomplishments of their forefathers, including historical bloodlines of Charlemagne, Genghis Khan. So that's going to be kind of cool. This is like, you know, if you have like the fifth grand, great, great grandson of Genghis Khan, you're like walking around. It's like, yo, you know, I'm the great, great grandson of Genghis Khan. You know, show me some respect kind of thing. Uh, it would be kind of cool in the game, you know? I think that's an, an interesting idea too, right? Because like part of building a legacy as a king or a ruler or whatnot does tie back to your bloodline. So the fact that they're giving that some attention and kind of fleshing that out a bit, like, yeah, if you were the son of Attila the Hun and you were in charge of the Huns, that might carry some more weight than if you're Joe Schmo who's put together a couple of tribes, right? That's true. (laughs) Um, Not that Attila has any bearing on Crusader Kings, just an example. Uh, It also looks like they're going to be enhancing some of the diplomatic options where you can sort of sway or antagonize your sort of neighbors, which is kind of interesting. I really like the coronation feature 
the idea of kings and emperors uh, needing clergy to come in and crown them, you know, giving authenticity to your kingdom based on the fact that the church was willing to, willing to crown you as king. I wonder if you can't find clergy, does that mean like you're not viewed as a legitimate ruler? I think that's a really interesting idea. Uh, and some other enhancements around like new succession laws or what have you. I don't have a ton to add on this one. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts, uh, Jean, around uh, your excitement or lack thereof of this, uh, this DLC. Believe it or not, with this deal, I haven't played a lot of Crusader Kings 2, and that's mainly because, uh, you know, it, it's it's at a time where, like, I'm not that crazy about, but the game is so complex, and so it, it, there's a lot of interest for me to get back into it. This expansion, based upon just these couple of uh, additions to the game, gets me motivated to just be like, you know what, as soon as this expansion, I'm hitting it up and starting up, and I'm hoping to get, you know, a couple of dozen hours uh into this game uh, another cool thing that i like is uh, there's gonna be deeper gameplay for religious wars so that's always a good thing and um one thing i think a lot of people have been asking for lists of people you've killed <laughs> wait is that in i didn't see that as a feature is that in there yeah i think i found it on like one of the bottom parts here uh, i was going through it uh yeah it's on and much more lists of people you killed well so. wow <laughs> Um, well, you know, I'm all about butchering my own soldiers. I hope it keeps track of my own troops who I killed. Yeah, so people were like, you know, I killed 55 guys. You know, and they're like, okay, I guess that gets you that gets that gains you cred among the international community. <laughs> I guess. Um, in any event, uh, that's interesting. So I think that it kind of wraps up the DLC talk. So we talked about the new DLC for Crusader Kings 2, Europea Universalis 4, uh, and um, Hearts of Iron. Uh, again, Stellaris has some DLC, but we don't really, frankly, we're already 40-plus minutes into this thing. We don't have time to touch on that. Um, so we'll kind of maybe save that for another discussion. But uh, I wonder if you could talk about sort of, I think, the biggest announcement out of uh, Paradox Con. And no, it's not the game that we're going to be talking about at the end of all this. They're Ooh. big. <laughs> um, but the biggest, I don't know if it's the biggest announcement, but certainly it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, they announced that they're working on uh, multiple projects uh, that kind of bring them into a new uh, industry, if you will. I wonder if you wanted to talk about that a bit, John. Yes, the uh, the hype that they have made that uh, many of us have projected and guessed what it was. And I posted a video and I was just like, you know what? I went through all their teasers and I said, you know what? No, 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 no. Not that one, John. I'm talking what? about the uh, B and the G. The BG? Board games. Oh, the board games. Yeah. You were going to spoil the last segment of this podcast. You were going to jump right ahead. You were like, no, 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 no. We're going right for the big reveal. <laughs> not that it's all a right. reveal for anyone I, listening. Yeah. All right. So the board games, I, you know, believe it or not, they've announced that they're bringing a whole slew of titles to uh, board games and they're going to make it uh, one of my, a lot of my friends who play board games, they're going to go crazy over this because uh, they're board game fanatics. They're bringing Crusader Kings. This is going to be the first uh, title that's going to be up for bid. And it's actually on Kickstarter right now. You could actually get the initial pledge, which is 46 a nice copy of the game. I, I am interested in this because I'm getting into board games a lot lately. And to play my favorite PC titles with my board game friends would be awesome. I'm looking at the Crusader Kings map here. It's small. Uh, it's definitely like a 
a tenth the size of the map that you see in the actual PC game. So it's more of a mix between um, like an RPG and Crusader Kings, um, the way I look at it. You know, I don't know how it's all going to flesh out. So I'm going to hold my opinion. I'm very interested in it. I'm probably going to back the project primarily because the box art looks pretty sick. And I would love for this to ha be hanging on my wall just to be like, dude, that's Crusader Kings. That's hard to iron. And that's EU4. And it's kind of balling, but, you know, it would be kind of neat. Your check is in the mail from Paradox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't know. You know, it's it's something I'm probably going to get. Uh, I know we talked about it a little bit before the podcast began about it's a Kickstarter. And this is kind of unusual for Paradox to do. Yeah. Uh, so first off, uh, just in case we didn't make it clear, Paradox is working on board games. Uh, as you said, Crusader Kings is kind of the first one, but they're also going to be doing board games for Hearts of Iron, Europa Universalis, and Cities Skyline. Um, so it seems like board games may be the next sort of uh, channel, if you will, the next you know revenue stream for Paradox. I imagine it will be small relative to uh, their their digital footprint. I think it's interesting. I think Crusader Kings has the potential to really make a tremendous board game, depending on how it's designed. I haven't looked a ton into the Kickstarter, but I think the story elements behind Crusader Kings and the fact that it's really about struggles between families to gain power, struggle between rival countries to gain power, I think Crusader Kings really does have a kernel of a great board game. I think it has to transition... I know you said the map is small. I'm happy about that. I think they have to bring it up to 20,000 feet. You can't have 500 kingdoms or whatever or duchies or, or, or you know small principalities struggling against each other in a board game. You just can't do it. But I think if they bring it up a level, 20,000 feet, key families in Europe struggling against each other, struggling against themselves, have card events that come in that sort of tell this narrative – I think Crusader Kings has the making of a tremendous board game, and I'm excited to see how that shapes out. I don't know if I'll kickstart it, but I'll definitely buy it when it comes out. Um, the the uh, units that they have, like the detail is absolutely insane. I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful. You're talking about on like the actual physical uh, pieces that you put on the board? Yeah, it's it's absolutely like, crazy, the detail on it. Yeah, I think it's it's. It, I think they put a lot of love and care into it uh, based on what they've shown so far, and, and I think it's interesting and exciting. Everything I said about Crusader Kings probably, probably applies to Europea Universalis. I think they both, they're, they're, to me, both of those games are story-driven, they're personality-driven, they're about the leaders, they're about the country, they're about the struggle for power. Hearts of Iron is, but it's different, and I, I worry about Hearts of Iron being made into a board game. I, I think it's, I, I don't know how they're going to make sure it's not Axis and Allies, yeah. Uh, which is a great game in of itself, but I, I don't want another Axis and Allies game. I don't know how Hearts of Iron is different than Axis and Allies when you turn it into a board game. I suppose they could go into more detail. They could have sort of production and industrial elements or cards or whatever. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I think that one's further along. They haven't really released anything other than the fact that it's going to be coming. Um, but I, I, Hearts of Iron, it's not a tactical war game. And to me, if it's going to be a board game, it either needs to be a tactical war game or it needs to be a strategic war game. And I think you and I would both agree Hearts of Iron is a strategic war game. But I don't know how they're going to model it. And I, I'm not terribly excited about that as a board game. 
Yeah, I feel like if they move the game not to be like all Axis and Allies, lean it more toward like a World in Flames kind of game, but a little less complicated, uh, they wouldn't meet a nice sweet spot. It's kind of like almost like, you know, I, I guess I'm putting it into PC terms, you know, like make it a tablet and don't make it a piece, uh, don't make it a laptop, make it a hybrid, kind of like a Surface, uh, Surface, uh, Surface Pro kind of thing, like a nice right in the middle kind of between uh, don't make it access and allies where it's too simple and don't make it world in flames where it's too complicated. Make it right in the middle so you can get a nice game going that'll take a couple of weeks to play out. Uh, not months like world in flames and not hours like access and allies. I think they'll need a nice sweet spot right in between. Yeah, it doesn't need, I think if it just plays out in a couple of, a couple of hours is fine. I, I don't know. I'm trying to get more into board games. Um, we've been doing with my wife and cousin and, and her cousin's, uh, boyfriend we've been doing like these sort of monthly board game parties i feel like crusader kings is the kind of game that i could get them to play because oh, yeah? it's really a story driven game um i i don't see any of them wanting to play Fire. so so for me selfishly to me crusader kings because of the narrative behind it it makes for a better um a better war game or a better board game conversion I guess we'll see how they, they make, you know, is, is Hearts of Iron going to be about the generals and the strategy? Is it going to be about the production? Like, how do fronts work? Like, I don't know. I just, I'm worried it's going to be Axis and Allies and just have a Hearts of Iron skin, which, okay, but I've played that a million times before. And I think this, this is, they got an overwhelming response to this because I think they, really, they gave the 30-day mark, right? So 20 days. Uh, You're talking about for Crusader Kings? Yeah, for Crusader Kings. So they have, uh, so the game I think launched two days ago. I mean, the Kickstarter, I'm sorry, launched two days ago. They have 2,357 backers. Their original goal was $57,057. I don't know why it's $57,000. $57,057. I'm sure that probably means something. But as of right now, their actual amount that they generate is $202,139. So you must have refreshed before I did, because I'm showing $204,471. Oh shit, they got $2,000 in the last couple of, in the last minute. <laughs> hey, you know, that, that $2,000 paradox, that's from me. So, you know, send me that check, please. Um, but yeah, I think, I think obviously there's been a tremendous response to the Crusader Kings board game. I, I'm debating kickstarting it as well, although I'll probably wait for it to just come out. Uh, I'm waiting to see it in a target near me or something. Got a board game section. But, but here's the thing. I, I think it's interesting. I'm kind of torn on this. How do you feel about a major multi-million dollar company using Kickstarter to greenlight their project? Uh, one or two ways. Uh, I feel like Kickstarter is coming to the point where a good example is um, the Australian Design Group, which actually makes World in Flames. And I'm a little bit of getting fanatic with World in Flames lately. I've been watching videos and talking uh, with my buddies about it. They are a long time running company. They've been, I think, around since the 80s. And they still continuously make World in Flames and they made a collector's edition and they put out the collector's edition on Kickstarter. And there's a lot of board game companies I know that are really good financial, you know, uh, financial, whatever system, you know, they're in good financial uh, status right now. And they're using like Kickstarter to fund a lot of their projects, uh, even though they probably could afford it. Uh, a lot of, uh, 
you know, without having to go to Kickstarter, they're doing that. And I feel like Kickstarter now is, yeah, it's good because it gave it gives the design studio and the publisher money. But I feel Kickstarter is more like almost like public exposure. You know, they can release a press release. Hey, we're making this. But Kickstarter is like, hey, by the way, we're kickstartering this thing. And it's a way to kind of get fans involved in the project to get, look, I, I don't want to wait until you guys release this. I want to become part of it now. I want to support the game right now. And I want to get like specific, like special kind of bonuses, uh, whether it be additional figures, uh, a map, up, a signed copy from the developer. I feel like Kickstarter is a way for fanatic fans, dedicated fans to say, look, I'm going to buy this in stores, but I want more. I want to pledge more money uh, because I want more from this. And I, I think it's a really good platform because like Gettysburg to Tie Turns, when it was announced to go on Kickstarter in I think 2014 or no, 2013. Where's the board game on that, by the way? <laughs> uh, oh, wait, the company went bankrupt. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. And since then, I haven't Kickstarted anything. So <laughs> I've been hesitant uh, until like, so something like this would get me to contribute money for a Kickstarter because Weak. I love Crusader Kings. I know Paradox is going to deliver. <laughs> right? Well, they're a public company and they're doing very well. So I think we're pretty confident they're not going to go bankrupt. Um, by the way, their stock has like tripled uh, since they went public like just over a year ago. Oh, jeez. They're doing really well. Um, but, you know, I completely agree with you. Um, I think... I, I, I agree that's what Kickstarter is being used for for board game developers. And I guess I don't have an issue with it being used. So there's Kickstarter, but there's also, I think it's, it's a GMT games where they basically, they've got like a P500 campaign basically where you can pre-order a game, which is it's kind of like kickstarting a game. But basically what they do is they take pre-orders and once they get to a certain number of copies, then the game will actually be made. And the logic there for board game developers is, hey, most board game companies, they're doing really well. There's been a re sort of a, a revelation in board gaming in the last few years, a, a, a renaissance in war gaming, specifically board games, where they're doing really well um, as a whole. But one of the ways that they justify uh, releasing a game is gauging interest. So by having these people put money down, uh, it allows them, and, and it's not like Kickstarter, where you put the money down, and then it basically assures that once you hit a certain amount, then the game will get made. And you'll get a copy. And what it what it does for the developers is printing board games isn't exactly cheap, right? Like there's a lot of ink, there's there's you know hard stock uh, sort of components that go to it. If you're if you get like five orders for your game, you're gonna lose money just making those five copies. So what this does is these campaigns allow these developers to ensure that they're at least breaking even or probably making a little bit of money before they actually go to print the game. Now. Kickstarter is a little bit different in that you're putting your money down, you know, whatever happens, happens. Um, but to me, it's kind of like, is that what Paradox is doing? Are they really trying to understand, are people interested? We want to make sure that it, it makes sense for us. Because if we print 10 games, if we, you know, print 10 copies of this thing, it's not worth our time. And frankly, we're going to lose money on it. If we at least guarantee a certain amount of orders, then it confirms to us it makes sense to do. And I think at least in Crusader King's perspective, in like two days, they've quadrupled their uh, their target. But it, to me, it seems a little bit odd because like if you're a small independent board game developer, it makes sense to say, I don't want to 
spend a hundred, you know, a ton of money printing a hundred copies and I might only sell, sell 20 of them. To me, it's a little bit different when you're talking about like a multi-million dollar corporation, uh, basically asking for donations from develop from, from their fans to make a product. Like, I don't know. It just seems like it's kind of being a little bit misused. My, my counter to that and where I'm, I'm less sort of opposed to it is the fact that they're not doing anything stupid like a lot of Kickstarters will do where they're like, oh, give me a thousand dollars and I'll, you know, I'll let you hang out with me for a weekend. Like they've got three price tiers and they're all basically like within the range of what you would spend on a board game. So at least in that sense, I think Paradox is doing right. They're basically the way they're operate operating it to me. It's like, all right, we're just trying to make sure that this makes sense for us to do business wise. Um, but, you know, the concept of Kickstarter little bit leery the way they're executing it i think is fine they um and i think one other cool thing that they have for this is they have like stretch goals and i think that's one big thing that paradox is using so they can kind of gauge how much production how much resources to divert from the company to this project because they have like seven uh seven stretch goals and they made, a, made all six, they made six out of seven of them. The next one is Archbishop miniatures, and they have Library Marshal, Court Physician miniatures. They got all this stuff. So I think it's a really good thing for any company to do because they kind of, like you were saying, it gauges the interest. And if you only have a certain much, a certain amount of resources for the company, you say, all right, this is a risk. How many, how much resources do we put? Do we take people out of our current projects and devote them to to this one and what if we do that we'll have to push back the release date to all the other projects and what if this uh, board game comes out and it tanks and we would just lose all that development time for them to do a kickstarter like wow all right so we almost have a quarter of a million dollars of interest let's assign a couple more guys to this because you know the stretch goals are getting uh, locked down and they can develop more time for and they can see how much uh, how many more um, uh, the public interest for so i i think this is a good idea they're doing and i know for me paradox i am gonna put some money on down on this even though i don't play crusader kings a lot i would love to have this to bring over my friends and be like look we're knocking this game out tonight i think you convinced me i think i might kickstart it now too yeah <laughs> you paradox you can make the checkout to matt the historical gamer <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I think it's interesting that they're moving into the board game space. I think for some of their games, it makes a lot of sense. I guess we'll see how it all plays out. With that being said, um, this is, I know we had said before in our conversation between each other, Hey, let's try and keep it to an hour. Well, we're at an hour. Um, (laughs) I don't know if we should start wrapping it up or if we should start talking about the big reveal, the game that you were so excited about. And I think are still thrilled is coming. And that is... This uh, I'm playing the music from the trailer of this game, which I think is absolutely epic, and I'm really excited about. I know you may have a different feeling, and uh, the game that we're talking about is Paradox's newest announcement, and that is... Uh, cat. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> but it is the upcoming game, the new newest IP, the first IP that they're releasing since Hearts of Iron 4. It is Rome imperator or imperator rome um the upcoming game for paradox development studios is uh it's a new ip they i guess sort of i mean they did e rome years ago uh literally a decade ago 
but this new project is coming out next year, and it looks at the Roman Republic. It seems to be focusing on the early days of the Roman Republic, the rise of the Republic, and uh, I'm excited, but why don't you talk a little about it? So starting off, I... Yeah, so as everybody is probably, if you've been following the blogs and everybody, the rumor was it was going to be Victoria 3. Even though Paradox A is not going to be Victoria 3, everybody thought it was going to be because I had all this great hints about it. And the announcement came out on Saturday that it was Imperator Rome, which I think I was mentioning to you, I was not looking forward to <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, however, you know, honestly, looking at the game, looking at the screenshots, I am motivated for this game. You know, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but looking at this game, looking at the screenshots, I have to tell you that this game is like Rome Total War meets Victoria. It's, I feel like one of the, it feels like a merge between those two games. Because one thing that I wanted Rome Total War to have, and this might not seem like a big issue for you know a lot of our listeners, but I wanted real numbers in Rome Total War. You know, I don't want like a, a 500 man army going up against a 750 man army. You know, like these are not realistic numbers. Back in the Roman days, you had armies as large as 30,000, as large as 100,000 men. And you can't properly facilitate that in total war, but you can in this game. And I think that the this will be the game that's going to knock out any other roman period game i think this is going to be the bar none the uh what do you call it not default but the, this is going to be this is going to set the bar for the best total uh i was going to say total war this is going to set the bar for the best roman game ever because paradox is something amazing which is uh you know they do great strategic warfare and mix and they do great politics and they do great economy games like victoria and i feel combining all that uh is going to be uh, perfect <laughs> i hope that these are not copyrighted <laughs> i have no idea but, you know, honestly, like you have diverse population, citizens, freemen, tribesmen, slaves. Um, they were also saying in the teasers that you have that you have minorities. And I guess some of these are going to be minorities. You're going to have to manage that. You're going to have to manage the Senate to hold your court together uh, in a monarchy. Uh, you're going to have to deal with barbarians, rebellions. You're going to you're going to deal with all the shit that the Romans had to deal with. In this game, which is going to be awesome. What do you think about this game? Your first reaction when you saw it? Um, my first reaction was, hey, Jean, I told you so. <laughs> we had a discussion, you I think, the day, me that, didn't you? <laughs> the, day, the day before. I think you had just posted this video on your on your YouTube that it said, like, I'm so excited. Guys, I think it's going to be Vicky 3. I think it's going to be Victoria 3. And I was just, Jean, no. No, it's going to be Rome. <laughs> got to be Rome. I'm telling you. Look at these look at these teasers they're providing. They're talking about like they're talking about like mages or whatever. MK Ultra. We might have tested this guy the uh telepathic. No, no, no. I'm just like, yeah. 
called it. I, I, by the way, I was not. The, the hints they gave, like, it was kind of like, all right, religion's important, but it's not the most important thing. Um, was it like mages or some kind of like religious person or whatever that wasn't really prominent in Victorian times, more medieval or uh, early Roman times? Like, this, these people play a role. Um, like it was like a lot of the hints were like, all right, I could see it being Rome and, and I could not see it being Victoria. So, um, you know, my first reaction might've been like, Hey, Jean, told you so. <laughs> Drop the mic. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and then I watched your video and you were like, no, it's not Victoria three. And I was yeah. I, I did the Rolling Stones intro. You can't always get what you want. Yeah, I thought I thought you were yeah. gonna have a minor meltdown on that one. The what? I thought you were gonna have a minor meltdown. You kind of did. I mean, maybe it's therapeutic releasing a video, being like, "Guys, no, it's Rome." Uh, you know, I it would have been like if it wasn't if this game doesn't look as beautiful as it does, I would probably had a little bit of a minor meltdown. But looking at the screenshots and people, you got to look at the screenshots. It looks Civilization Six graphics i mean looking at the mountains looking at the trees the the detail is just it looks like civilization six in terms of graphics it, it's absolutely beautiful this is the best gameplay engine uh that they've released ever graphically speaking yes <laughs> graphically. Like, have you played the game like I, that seems like a broad statement um but no but i mean so that's interesting you say that though because i've had multiple people be like it looks just like rome like rome 2 total war Looks just like the map looks the same. And I could see both. Um, I do think it looks good. Uh, I think, you know, we'll see what comes of it. I'm excited about it. Uh, I have some reservations. I think Rome is a fascinating period. It's exciting to me to see uh, Paradox branch out beyond their stable of sort of three core IPs. Like, to me, and I may be missing something here. So, like, Stellaris they make, but it's not really a core IP. They've made one of them. Their core products are Victoria, EU, and CK. Those are like their staple games. Like if they were EA, God forbid, that would be their FIFA, their Madden, their NBA or NHL or whatever the hell. Um, that would be their core stable of games that they go back to regularly and keep repeating and keep innovating and keep you know iterating on. And that's really what Paradox Development Studios does, right? Those games. And they've got Stellaris, which is a new IP, but it's not one of their historical IPs. It's obviously, it's a fictional. And it's exciting to me to see them branching out. I think in some ways Stellaris is safe in terms of a game that they're making because 4X space strategy games are just big. Like, it's of any of the strategy game genres, it seems like those always have the big sellers. Uh, Sins of a Solar Empire was huge. I remember when uh, uh, Matrix brought... um... Oh my goodness, their 4X space strategy game, when they brought that to Steam. Um... Out here. Distant Worlds. When they brought Distant Worlds to Steam, it was like in the top 10 on Steam for like two weeks, for like a Matrix game. This crazy ultra-detailed space game. Um, you know, it's it, these, for whatever reason, 4X space games seem to be a thing. And so in some ways, Paradox sort of bringing that to their, their core game uh, platform wasn't much of a risk. Rome is, because I think, you know, when you look at games that Paradox has done outside of the, the big three of Crusader Kings, EU, and Victoria, 
like okay they did uh what was it um march to Gl- or march of the eagles the Napo- oh, yeah. basically napoleonic hearts of iron that flopped they didn't give one dlc that thing just died yeah. um eu rome did not do well yeah i didn't even that one up yeah 10 years ago did not do well um they don't they haven't done a lot successfully outside of their their core historical games. And so to me it's it's exciting to see them branching out. To me it's them saying, "Listen, we're not just these three games as a development studio. We can do other games. We can do them well. We have passion for more than just these three topics." And that's exciting to see. I also think that it's an op- opportunity for them to take some bigger risks because it's not one of their three core games. And it allows them to try some new things that they might be interested in bringing out in Crusader Kings 3. They might be interested in bringing out in Victoria 3 and Hearts and EU 5. You know, we're talking decade a decade out for some of these games, maybe. But they, they can try some new gameplay mechanics. Uh, they can try some new ideas. They can make some enhancements to their engines or maybe bring, roll out a new one. And... They can do it with a little bit less risk because if it fails at the end of the day, it's not one of the three cash cows of their company. If it succeeds, it allows them maybe to open up a new IP, a new cash cow, a new thing to really, you know, bring them a little bit more diversity in the topics and games that they cover. But if it fails, it's not the end of the world. If they brought out a Victoria 3 that was innovative and new and different and it failed miserably and just wasn't well executed, that would be not catastrophic, but that would be a big to them as a company if they do it with a a game that no one's you know played in 10 years who really cares but basically like i mean you can't mess up victoria 3 it's just basically see what what works in victoria 2 what everybody's passionate about make the graphics better improve the gameplay a little bit and you have a successful product this is definitely a risk for them right but you're not talking so what you're basically saying is reskin the game improve the performance and put the same game out that's what you're just saying right there. That's literally what you just said is just, you know, iPhone 6, iPhone 7. Eh, just, I mean, it, you honestly, know, enhance a few things. It's the same thing. Like you, you have evolutionary. Uh, every year is going to be evolutionary. You're never going to. You're Once in a blue, you'll have a revolutionary uh, product. Every year after that is going to be evolutionary. And once in a blue, you'll get another revolutionary uh, thing that will leap you forward. And technology and other things do that. And, you know, Victoria 3 is not going to be, if they had done it, it was not going to be revolutionary. Maybe the one after that where they design a new engine where uh, a new type of capability is able to be implemented. And then they mix that with Victoria. That would be a revolution. Like, wow, we didn't think that, you know, you can play, you know, make this game any better because this one individual feature in this engine is just making it incredible. I think what would have been awesome um, I, like you were saying, I, I, I really, this is a risk. Imperator Rome is a risk and it's, it's, it's very brave of them to do this. A safer risk that would have yielded a guaranteed, uh, revenue stream and guaranteed, you know, like the whole community going crazy would have been to either do a Victoria three or an East vs. West. I mean, there's a huge, massive community in paradox that are like clamoring for a Cold War ever or modern day ever uh, hard to iron type game. 
And they did originally have East versus West, which they canceled toward the end of their production. But there were so many people. We're talking thousands of people like, look, we want this game. Make it. And it would have been a lesser risk because you have all these people saying, we, you were making this game. We were crazy about it. Please release it. And then they were like at the end, yeah, it doesn't meet our, you know, the engine's old. We're just, we're just not going through with it. And I feel like, like you were saying, you know, Imperial Rome needs to, it needs to, I think it's going to be the best Rome war game set in that uh, era. I just don't know if it's going to be enough because like you have a lot of historical games. You have Crusader Kings that takes a huge portion of, uh, it brings a different element to uh, to that era of gaming. Then you have EU4 for people that want like a, um, a Vic- not a Victorian, but colonial kind of era kind of game where you expanding throughout like unknown territory, colonizing America and all that stuff. Then you have Victoria where everything is colonized, but you have like these little squabbles. You have like, uh, you know, these nice little wars where you have like uh, Texan independence, you have the American civil war, world war one and such. And then you have hearts of iron that takes it to the semi-modern era. And the only thing that's missing out of an entire lineup is like, Hey, take it to the modern era. And I feel like Rome... Or yes, the ancient era. But it, I feel like we already have a lot of these ancient games. You know, we already have a lot of these games that are set in that time period. Crusader Kings is like borderline. It's not exactly um, it's not exactly Rome, but uh, forgive me if I'm uh, mistaken, but a lot of people that, you know, were watching that... Uh, what is that thing on HBO with all the, you know, weird guys dressed up in that hot girl with the bl- blonde hair? Um uh, God of War, no. You know which one I'm talking about? I do, but I'm not going to say it based on that description. <laughs> With the dragon and the uh, and the God. I know it's, I think it's called God of War, right? It's, oh, it's that's a video of... game, buddy. Which one? That's a video game. Um, <laughs> no, it's Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. So, you know, I mean, honestly, like... The maybe... weird guys with the swords and the hot girl. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> she was, you gotta admit, she's, a, she's very attractive in that show. Anyway, I only seen one episode, but she she was the highlight of it. But they, they moving they, they, on. And you know they based it on the, on that on that mod, and it's made a lot of money from what what you mentioned uh, a couple of nights ago that it made a lot of money from that. So I feel like we have a game for all these errors, and I feel like we're just missing a modern day error game. I don't know if their games are well suited. Okay. Um. I, I, I think, I don't know. I think that's a discussion for another day. I'm excited about it because what it does is something that no game that I've ever played can do. And it can bring a story-driven game. If this is more Crusader Kings or EU than Hearts of Iron, I think it can be really special. Because you're right, we've got a fair amount of games about Rome. I don't have a lot of good games about Rome. Um... There is Rome Total War, which let's face it, the strategic element of Rome Total War is all about build is all about enabling you to build big armies and conquer lots of territory. Not about the politics. They can claim all these enhancements all they want. That game's core strength is its combat. It's about warfare. You've got Hegemony, which is a strategy game that looks at Rome. A more narrow focus, the grand strategy element isn't there to the same extent. To me, the few times I've played it, it's felt more operational than anything. 
But it's, again, it's not about the politics. It's not about the personalities. It's not about Brutus. It's not about Caesar. It's about the, the battles. And that's what Rome, that's what Total War has always been. It's about the battles. And they're enhancing, reportedly, some capabilities in, in that way. They're allowing you to set certain tactics so that you can, you know, have your armies follow certain approaches. I think they're going to have to beef up the combat a little bit to really make Rome shine, because at the end of the day, the Roman Empire conquered a lot of territory. But if it becomes about the personalities in Republican Rome, those constant struggles back and forth, the backstabbing, if they make this game about the personalities and the politics of the Roman Republic during its rise, this could be something special. This could be something that we've never seen. Because Rome Total War's diplomacy just sucks. Oh, yeah. And every other game about Rome just sucks. Ajod's game is not about the politics. You know, there are no Roman games that excel about Roman politics. And if there's one thing that Paradox has done exceptionally well in Crusader Kings, and to a slightly lesser extent, if they've done one thing well and made that their core strength, it's... Family management, uh, uh, just relationship management, and building a story around individuals as you try and put your, your side forward. And I think that's where this game could be really special. And I hope that's what they do with it. But uh, I'm excited. And I think this could be something very different. And I think... It's a game I'm going to play the hell out of. So I know I understand, you know, there's other things Paradox could do. There are other things certain people might have preferred. But I think this is a rich period of history that, frankly, doesn't get as much attention as it probably deserves. Um, you know, maybe the modern era doesn't either. But if you're telling the story of individuals and you're telling the story of the rise of Rome, I think you could really do something fantastic with Paradox's style, and I can't wait to play it. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I think this is going to be an incredible game. I, I, I do feel I completely agree with you that Paradox has nailed uh, diplomacy as well as uh, family management, this and that. I do think that if they incorporate that into this game, it's going to be, it's going to be incredible. And they will, right? Because it's Paradox. That's what they do. Yeah. And you know they would have to they would have to work on screwing this up. You know, like it, they're naturally going to make this game incredible because the only way they can't not make it incredible is they're going to have to intentionally screw this up, which they won't. You know, um, I do like that. I do love the UI. It, it, like you were saying before, it does provide like a Rome Total War kind of feel, but it's I mean it's it's generic because it's it's that's the way Rome looked like. Everything is. In. I do like that. Um, that there are real numbers behind this game. I, I mentioned this before, but I do really like on the top left, it has 65,544 people. I'm assuming that's for the province of ne Neapolis, right? Or at least for maybe the, uh, the kingdom of, or one of the families of Rome or whatever, or one of the kingdoms of Rome. I do like there's actual real numbers. I, I don't think I've ever played any game where, you know, you have actual troop and actual population density for for actual Roman game. 
So I think that's going to be really awesome. It's I, I do like that huge feature. So I, I do think this is going to be the best Rome game. But in terms of the modern era, I know I keep going back to this, but if you think about it, we do have Total War, right? And it's not going to be as good as this. Obviously, this is going to be on top. But we do have Rome Total War, and, and it it's does. Not a, it's not. I don't, I'll let you get back to your point. It's not about good or bad. They do different things intentionally, and that's fine. Yeah, and you know the family aspect, and as well as growing your kingdom and uh, relationships, it's going to add a huge facet to it. I just keep thinking is par- uh, paradox can make a great modern day game, and I feel like with everything going on nowadays, like Rome is is done. It's in the history books. The The book is closed, right? I do feel there's a lot of stuff that's going on, especially in like American politics, a lot of stuff that's going on right now that you can, that a lot of people would be interested to see how it plays out. Like for example, the Iraq invasion in 2003, right? I feel like paradox can take all these conflicts, the Iraq invasion, the 91 invasion, Vietnam, uh, Cold War, all these things. And the cool thing about, and that Paradox can do is can give the players, all right, you're in charge of U.S., have at it. Try to deal with the Vietnam conflict. Try to deal with the Gulf conflict. See what you can do about Al-Qaeda. Do you need to invade the Iraq during the 2003 conflict? Is there another way around? Like, can you take out Saddam and maybe stabilize the country afterward? I feel like no game has tried to approach that. Mainly, I don't know if it's because they're worried about, you know, public response. Oh, this is, you know, too much of a fresh conflict. I, I don't feel like that's that's a key. Uh, that's really a big factor. I just feel that I don't know if everybody's hesitant to do it or they don't have an interest. But I feel like it would be a great it would be a great strategy and a, a great war game because it would put the player in a perfect what if scenario and relate it to modern day. Okay. Like I want to see if I can honestly play a strategy game uh, from paradox where it's 2003. I've given the ultimatum to Saddam. Do I really need to invade? Can I use airstrikes? I feel like these are questions that would be really interesting to answer. And I feel like, you know, honestly, there's tons of Rome games i understand there's there's critical aspects that paradox is bringing into it but it's been a lot of it's been done and i feel like nothing has been done modern day like i can't even i think besides uh superpower which came out in the early 2000s i think that's the last strategic slash tactical modern day game that has been released so if i look at steam and i look at rome Search Rome. So there's the Age-Odd game, which is really more of a battlefield game. There's Hegemony. Um, there's Chariot game. There's Rush on Rome, which I don't know what the hell this thing is. There's like yeah. Civ, like there's Rome Caesar or whatever, which is like a Sim City for Rome. There's really not that many games on Rome. I, I think you're you're overselling how many there are out there. Um, it's, There's a lot of Grand Ages, Rome Gold, that's 2010. Rome 2, Empire Divided. I mean, it just expands. Yeah, that's Rome Total War. Three. 
I mean, it just goes on and on. But if I guarantee if you put in like a modern day strategy game in Steam. I've got two for you already. Have you played uh, Supreme Ruler Cold War? I did. It's it's okay, but it's it's not it's not there. It's it it's What about real politics? I think I've played that. Uh, why does that sound familiar? Real we talked politics. about it in an episode. Yes, I did. I'm it's just saying there are there are modern day games out there. I, I think you're selling Rome a little bit short. And it's I like think real politics, and then there's that uh, superpower, and then there's like three or four of them versus, and they're all not really well done versus the Roman games, which a lot of them are really really good. Like you have, like you were saying, the Age Odd game is is good, and Rome. Two Total Wars is a good game. You know, obviously when it came out, it wasn't the best, but there are a lot of Rome games. I feel like Rome has been done to death, just like World War II has been done to death. You know, there's certain aspects, like a great thing, like a lot of people love about Victoria is there's not a lot of strategic games about that time frame. That's why a lot of people go passionate about it. It's like, yes, I would love to play the Mexican-American War. I would love to play the Texan-American War. I mean, Texas-Mexican War. This so and Napoleonic, uh, you know, strategic wise. This Arms race, the Cold War, crisis in the Kremlin. There's another one that just came out about uh, playing as like East Germany during the fall of the Berlin Wall. I, I'm think not, I think there's more than you than you give credit for. Now, yeah, to to your point, you know, maybe it's fine. Maybe you want a paradox game for it. Okay, I don't. I I think Paradox's system is better suited for uh, ancient. Uh, or you know, distant uh, time frames uh, than it is suited for modern day. Because East versus West did it right. Like East versus West looked perfect. It it was they they knock they had some really cool things in that game where you can update ships. Like I have SX class carriers after World War II, I can uh, update certain parts of the ship over time. Kind of like the USS Intrepid. They over the years they started adding you know uh, split deck all these things they added really cool things to this game so i don't know i don't but, know. I, I feel i feel like your comments frankly are are more directed toward what you would like rather than what paradox typically makes like when you're talking about vietnam the gulf war like paradox really doesn't do wars like that's not their focus outside no, of hearts of iron like but but, like, but they're diplomatic individual personal games the the conflicts themselves are very very uh, abstract at like a 30,000 foot level. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, it's, uh, that engine that they have for EU4 Crusader Kings is per will be perfect to mix with this. However, I, I do feel with the hard to iron four engine mixed with what they, the ideas that they had with East versus West, you would have a perfect Cold War ever game. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be just one war. It could be a combination of all those conflicts leading up to today. Like, you know, make a modern day conflict with, you know, what's going on in North Korea. That would be a great game, you know, where it sets in, you know, 2016 or 2017 with Trump taking office. And that's one of the scenarios starts points. All right, how do you deal with the North Korean conflict? And you can say, all right, well, I'm going to do this and maybe and then get involved militarily and see how that works out. Those what-if scenarios, I feel, are going to make a game great. And I feel like it's going to do it with Rome because, you know, obviously people are going to play Rome. They're going to see, all right, let's see how far I can conquer. And there's always, a, like when you play Paradox games, it always comes down to what-if scenarios. A lot, of, a lot of people try to go off the beaten path, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, to each their own. And obviously I, I know you've, we've, 
brought it up on multiple episodes in the past. You really want, you really would have liked East East versus West to be made. Um, maybe someday. Uh, I did post I, on my Twitter where I wrote uh, something like when they after they were closing out Paradoxes, PDX, Con, whatever they call it. I wrote back something like. I did. Uh, hold on. Let me see. Yeah, I put it right here. I they had like a little picture of one guy giving something about like I think EU four. So I photoshopped it and I put like East versus West and I said dreams can come true. They can happen to you. Oh God! <laughs> and I didn't expect any of them to respond back to it, but some of the developers actually wrote like on it. You know, like liked it on uh, Twitter. So I'm I'm kind of you know taking that as a sign. It's like yeah, we know what you like. You never know, it might come down the road, you know, kind of thing like that. <laughs> oh boy, um, I just can't wait for the day. East versus West, twenty thirty confirmed. Um, if that happens, I'm doing a block party. Everybody's invited. Liquors on the house. Wow. Um, I'm gonna hold you to that. Damn <laughs> oh, right. I'll I will I will set up the whole block. I'm gonna I'll, I'll get uh I'll get Led Zeppelin to come down play all night Jesus all Christ day. dude you need to chill on the commitments there um <laughs> the, these are going to be in the public record forever or as long as Apple exists um but uh anyway so you're a little lukewarm on Rome I am excited about Rome um but uh I guess we'll see what happens I think that kind of wraps up Paradox's uh announcements so we've got uh, uh Imperator Rome uh, which is sort of the big announcement I know they had a fantasy game as well but we Frankly, we've been talking for over an hour and a half, so we don't really have time to talk about that. Um, but uh, from a historical perspective, I think that wraps it up. They've uh, they've announced Imperator Rome, Crusader King, Hearts of Iron, and Europea Universalis uh, DLC. A lot of other things were talked about and discussed. They also announced board games for those three games that we announced, as well as City Skyline. Uh, there's a lot going on with Paradox, a lot of updates, a lot that we're excited about. You know, hopefully... Um, you know, feel free, obviously, to share your own thoughts about uh, about this podcast. Uh, Jean will uh, bankrupt himself the moment that East versus West is announced. He will spend so much money celebrating that he will not actually be able to afford the game itself. It will be a uh, Greek tragedy that uh, will be written That's about. And Microsoft stock just click it all out. Yeah. It will it will be one of those tragedies that uh, whatever the next generation's Shakespeare will write about. Um, I do have to say one thing about the Imperator of Rome. There's something I read here. It says general can turn generals can turn against you, taking their armies with them. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it again. It gets to that story element of Rome. This idea of generals' armies being more loyal to them than they are to the state, these personal armies, which was very much the reality of Republican Rome, especially during the sort of the fall of Rome. I know we didn't really talk about the features that they announced with Rome. I think it's really interesting. Seems to be they're going to be really focusing on the earlier period of the Republic, maybe to the later period. I will be disappointed if they don't have DLC that brings it into the Empire. I'm far more interested in Rome from like 100 AD uh, through to the fall than I am really the Republican period. But, um, you know, I think I think this game could really do well. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them kind of do a Crusader Kings approach. I think when Crusader Kings originally came out, it started in like 1,000-something AD, but now it's all the way as far forward as like 600 AD. So I think, you know, they've got a lot of room they can play with. They can expand it further into the fall of Rome, maybe linking it up with CK2. They could expand it into the past, into sort of the glory days of the Greek states, 
as well. I think the challenge is there in any of those movements, there are vast periods of time in there where things are relatively calm. Um, but, you know, it's not just about Rome, right? Like these games are never just about the one country that might be on the title. It's going to sure. be about Macedon. It's going to be about the successor states of, of Alexander the Great. It may even be about Alexander the Great's rise. I think they said it was going to be starting in 304 BC, which um, I'm trying to remember, I think there was a little bit after Alexander's death, but certainly during the, the period of the successor states of, uh, of the Greek states, you know, it's not just going to be about Rome. And the mini-map goes uh, all the way to the beginning of China, too. So all of India is in there, Iraq, all that. I know they mentioned India. Yeah, I guess I didn't know exactly how far it went. So, I mean, this is going to be a vast, vast campaign map to play on. So, again, when you say Rome, not really not really Rome. Uh, it goes beyond that. If and Alexander and the Great, that's going to be... Yeah, that'll be incredible. That'll probably be a DLC, right? Like, let's, let's be real. 1999, <laughs> you know... Or fork over your money. Paradox. If take my money, just just, just take my money. Then just just take it. Oh, I'm sure. That, all right. Well, you know, you already said you were gonna spend all this money on your block party, so I don't know how much you have left. Um, <laughs> although I guess uh, East versus West isn't coming yet, so maybe not. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about it. I think it is a really interesting potential. I think it's something that they can try some things out. I know you said it's risky. It's risky in some regards. It's an opportunity in others. Um, I think it lets them innovate and try new things more freely than they otherwise would. Uh, but obviously, you know, if it doesn't go well, uh, let's. I, I really hope it's not another March of the Eagles where the game launches and then dies. You know, six months after it comes out. Um, but we'll see. So, with that being said, I know I've been rambling for a while, and I probably should have uh, wrapped this up a while ago. But, um, you know, ParadoxCon 2018, a lot of information coming out, a lot that strategy gamers are going to want to pay attention to, a lot that we're paying attention to. Uh, Some mixed reactions with our own group about the uh, Rome announcement. But uh, overall, I think it's uh, a hell of a lot that's coming out that Paradox is working on. No one can say that they're resting on their laurels. No, definitely not. With that being said, I know, John, you're not drinking anything tonight. Uh, but I am in the process of finishing a bottle of Pinot Noir uh, by Quail Creek, which is the cheapest Pinot Noir I found on the rack. So, um, you know, it's adequate. It's fruity. It's it's interesting. It's it's red wine. Uh, no no scotch for me tonight. What'd you say? I'm trying to age my water here. <laughs> You're aged. Ah, fine. A fine aged water. Yes. Uh, from uh, vintage... Uh, May 21st of uh, 2018, uh, about 25 minutes old. From Nestlé. <laughs> Nestlé. I prefer my uh, La Croix flavored water. <laughs> Some, uh, sparkling elements to it. A little bit of mango, a hint of mango. <laughs> um, it really hits the palate uh, soft, but then becomes stronger as the bubbles hit the tongue. Um, but anyway, it's getting weird now. Um, so <laughs> anything you wanted to leave us with, uh, Jean, tonight? No, I would just like to say, student for the next episode, which is going to come out later this month, there's a lot of... The game that the developer that we interviewed, the game is got me so motivated. Uh, so I am 
it, it kind of like satisfied my East versus West urge for a while. So like the heartbreak that I took is kind of being alleviated. So I, I'm good now after this interview, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait a little bit for that too. So sure. you know. I don't, so I'm really excited. I think it's a great episode that we have coming up a great interview. And I want to thank you for getting the developer that we have for the interview. Not sure where you get East versus West, maybe North versus South. You may have your directions mixed up on the compass, but um, well, uh, that'll be for another time. So until next time, this is the historical gamer. You can call me Matt saying, thanks for watching. Jean, you want to send us out? See you guys next time. Peace out. So happy about it, John. <laughs> Send it up. <laughs> I, I don't have a drink. I need a drink. <laughs> All right. Well, we're still recording, so that's going to be oh. in. Oh, damn. I don't have a drink. <laughs> I need a drink. Beer and alcohol as you can send me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm going to end it now. <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.